Hi, this is Mimi and welcome to my podcast, The Lovely Becoming. Today's guest is Dr. Laura Thomas, who is the founder of the London Center for Intuitive Eating. Um, she's a registered nutritionist and she is really awesome um, and a certified intuitive eating counselor. And so today we're gonna talk all about intuitive eating as well as um, the holidays. Hi, Laura, how are you? Hey, Mimi, I'm really good, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. It's really nice to be here. Thank you for coming. Um, so tell us about yourself. What do you do? What do you love? Ah, ah, ooh, where to start? Um, that feels like a big, <laughs> big question. So um, like, like you said, I'm director at London Centre for Intuitive Eating. Um, I'm a nutrition counsellor here, so I work predominantly with um, folks who have eating disorders, disordered eating, and really supporting them to have a more positive relationship with food and their bodies. Um, using definitely the lens of intuitive eating, that's a big part of what we do, but also drawing on other frameworks and um, yeah, modalities that are supportive for the people that we, we work with. Um, I actually, I had a baby last year, so I've been um, kind of, I'm, I'm not really doing much clinical work at the moment, um, kind of setting up the new center that we've established here, um, the new new space that you were commenting on um, a minute ago uh, before we started recording. So we've just opened up a new clinic um, that has, I mean, I think it's stunning, um, that has, <laughs> we have a number of clinic rooms. We also have a studio space where we're um, having, you know, intuitive movement classes and um, body affirming classes and we'll hold workshops in the new year. Um, we also have a little shop where we're selling body positive merch and brands and books and, and things that we love. So that's kind of, um, I've been working over the past six months to, to establish this place, our physical space after working online and remotely for so long. And yeah, just really get it up and going. And I'm hoping to return to my clinical work in the new year. So that's exciting. That's awesome. And congratulations on having a baby. That's so exciting. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a huge, huge change um, in our lives, but it's been, it's been incredible. That's awesome. Um, so, you know, it's funny because out of all the three seasons on this podcast, we haven't actually broken down too much about intuitive eating. Um, so could you give us like a broad overview of what it is? Yeah, um, it's it's really hard to distill intuitive eating down into like a snappy soundbite, but I'll, I'll do my best. So like a way that I often describe uh, describe it to people who are just completely new to the concept is I kind of think about that person who is really in their head about food, who um, has this like a lot of noise about how much they're eating, what they're eating, when they're eating, you know, if it's good or bad or healthy versus unhealthy, if they've, you know, earned it, or if, you know, if they eat a cookie, then they have to like, you know, burn it off or make up for it or, you know, whatever that dialogue sounds like, I think we can, we can all resonate with some version of that. And so for me, intuitive eating is a set of tools, a framework that we can use to just dial that noise way down and to, to find a more peaceful relationship with food and our body. So like I said, it's a framework. It's made up of 10 overarching principles that are designed to help us break down food rules, make peace with food and, and find a more comfortable relationship with our bodies. 
Um, it was developed by two dietitians in the 90s, Evelyn Tribbley and Elise Resch, who are both incredible humans. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they found that, uh, you know, a lot of the conventional things that they were doing in their nutrition practice, prescriptive diets and, you know, counting calories and numbers and weighing and, all, you know, this really rigid approach to food really wasn't working for their clients and, and frankly was resulting in more disordered eating and things that looked, you know, eerily similar to eating disorder behaviors in folks. And so they developed this framework to move away from, from all of that, from, from everything that that culture puts on us and helps people work towards food freedom. So that's kind of like it in a nutshell. <laughs> I don't know if you have any follow-up questions for that, or if you want to go into like the, the 10 principles. That was perfect. I think it's really helpful to think about it in terms of a framework um, and not like a list of rules or anything, because I've been, um, I've been asked if intuitive eating is like another diet and it's like, no, it's really about moving away from that and moving towards your um, hunger and fullness cues um, with some really good principles to help make it more nuanced. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, it's understandable to see why people sometimes think that it's a diet or it, it gets kind of repackaged as a diet. And um, specifically people turn it into the hunger and fullness diet because two of the principles are about learning to honor your hunger and to feel your fullness. And the thing that I always come back to is, well, those are two of the 10 principles. There's eight other principles that we also need to kind of think about and work through and figure out how they apply to us. Um, in order to sort of really realize the full expression of intuitive eating, if we're only focusing on the hunger and fullness, then yeah, no doubt it's going to become a diet. Um, but it's all those other pieces that actually I find are as important, you know, if not as important, then even more important than the hunger and the fullness piece. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely. Um, I'm wondering, a big question that kind of always gets asked is if someone exercises and quote, eats healthy and maintains a normal BMI, um, why is that called thin privilege and not just discipline? Oh, yeah, that is, that is a big question. And I think that, well, I think because some of us have sort of innate biology um, that predisposes us to being in a smaller body. So kind of almost the, the exercise and the, um, the, the food part, like it probably won't make a huge difference to our bodies anyway. Um, and so we might attribute it to, you know, I might say, oh yeah, I, you know, I work so hard on my diet and, um, at the gym and, Blah 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 blah. But actually, it's it's not really the it's not really discipline. It's your biogenetic. You fulfill your biogenetic potential, if that makes sense. Whereas you know someone else who has a different set of biology and a different set of genes may do the exact same um, exercise, may eat almost identically to you, but their body reacts differently to that, those same behaviors. And so, um, you know, they may be, they may be following the exact same, you know, plan in inverted commas and have a completely different body to you. But because the first person 
is more like looks more like the um you know the the societal ideal then they get privileged because of their bodies so they have more access to resources more access to things like social capital um that that make them you know they're, they're higher up this sort of body hierarchy if you will that is created by society and i don't know if i really answered your question did i go kind of off piece <laughs> no i was really tracking with it i think that's really helpful because it's true that we tend to think one meal or one day will really have a huge impact on our weight or um i think it's interesting because we tend to think that if we restrict long term it takes a long time but if we one meal that's quote bad then it's like it's all over it's just bad um and i think that's just not true and it's it's really um a rigid way to live totally yeah um speaking of weight uh what is set point weight and how does someone figure out their set point yeah so i I kind of alluded to in that last answer this idea that we all have um, a sort of predetermined, um, you know, genetically determined weight at which our bodies are comfortable, um, and this is essentially what our set point weight is. So we have this genetic blueprint that dictates more or less where our bodies are in homeostasis, so where they're at their most comfortable point. Um, and, you know, we can, we can artificially suppress our weight below our set point by going on diets and restricting and engaging in disordered behaviors. But as soon as we let off the, um, the pressure a little bit, as soon as, you know, we, um, yeah, maybe like thinking about coming up to the holidays, you know, maybe we eat a bit more than we had been when we were restricting. And so our, our, our weight will kind of pop back up to its genetic set point weight, because it's always fighting to get to that point. It's always trying to defend that point where it's naturally most comfortable. So it's kind of like if you're in a, I wrote about this in my book, like um, when you're in a swimming pool and you're trying to push a ball down under water you know like a floaty ball and it's it really hard like it requires a lot of energy and effort and your arms get really tired and then as soon as you like let up just a tiny bit the, the ball comes popping up um out of the water and it kind of sits on on the top of the water so that's where your um your set point is and your body is always trying to push you back towards your set point so when we're restricting when we're depriving ourselves when we're on a diet when we're over exercising the the reason that our, our diets quote unquote fail is not because of lack of willpower, but it's because our bodies and our biology are, are, are sort of driving us back towards our, our set point weight by increasing our appetite, by slowing down our metabolism and all of these biological factors working together to help protect our bodies, to protect, um, yeah, to, to defend that set point weight. In terms of how we go about finding what our set point weight is, I feel like that's a total red herring. So I feel like that is, I feel like there's a, a sort of diet culture piece that's coming in here when people start asking about, well, how do I find out what my set point weight is? Um, why do we need to know what our set point weight is? We, we, I guess we figure it out by, by following and trusting our hunger and fullness cues and by 
you know, finding pleasure and joy in food and making peace with food and with movement and, um, and not approaching food in this really rigid black and white all or nothing way. So it's kind of when we're at that point where we're eating intuitively, that's probably where our set point weight is, but there's no way of predicting what it is ahead of time. There's no way, there's no calculation that we can use to, to determine where it is. And so sometimes when, yeah, when I hear clients asking that question of like, how do I find out what it is? I'm like, where's that coming from, right? Is, is that really coming from a place of curiosity or is that like try, trying to think ahead and calculate, okay, is my set point weight still in a fat body or still in a higher weight body um, or a socially acceptable body? Does that make sense? Yes. Do you, yes. Do you, does that like kind of mirror what you see as well or like what, you, what are your thoughts? Definitely. I think it's it's really sneaky because like you said, you're really trying to get at, will my body be okay um, in mm. the new size? And like, what will that new size be? So I'm prepared. Um, and, you know, it's hard because you have to kind of trust your body and trust that like, it's going to do what it needs to do. Um, and I think that hinders the process a lot because sometimes people will start eating intuitively, notice they're gaining weight and then be like, no, 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 I can't do this anymore. Um, and so it can be really hard to kind of take that trust, that leap of faith in our um, bodies and, and trust that we can cope with whatever comes up for us in terms of body size, um, while recognizing also that there is um, a lot of oppression around being fat. And so it's really weighing both things like knowing that, um, you know, you might be exposed to more negative comments, um, you might get more doctor disapproval, et cetera. Um, but you can also gain a peaceful relationship with food and you can also start to nourish yourself and, and care for yourself above kind of like what, um, what everyone else kind of says. Easier said than done. It's not like you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm living my best life. Um, it's really hard. Um, and Absolutely. having compassion for yourself is critical. Yeah, and I, and I don't in any way mean to dismiss or trivialize how difficult um, letting go of, of privileges. But I, I think it's also really interesting that the assumption when people go on, to, you know, embark on intuitive eating is that they automatically will gain weight. And it's just something I, I've, I've noticed. So I wanted to name that. But also there's this other piece that I want to bring in here, which is this idea that, um, you know, when when we go through a, an intuitive eating journey with our bodies that like there's this fixed end point this fixed destination that we're going to get to and that our bodies are going to get to like a particular weight for example and stay there for the rest of our lives um and you know some people's weight goes up some people's goes down some people's stays the same um and i think what um, the invitation within intuitive eating is to not that we will never care about those things or but that it takes up less headspace um, and yeah I, I, I just want to acknowledge that piece around weight stigma as well that you know we may feel more peace in ourselves but that doesn't mean that the wider society is as accepting of our bodies as we are. And that is, that interface is so, so difficult to contend with. Definitely. Yeah, that's really um, important. And I'm glad that you mentioned it. 
Um, let's think. So tell us about emotional eating. Um, people always want to know, how do I stop emotional <laughs> eating when I'm bored or if I'm just grazing? Is it a bad thing? Um, yeah. So I, I love talking about emotional eat eating because I think it's one of the most like misunderstood um, like concepts that, that I come across in this space. And um, as, as part of the, as, as part of my podcast um, around the release of my second book, I had, um, I, I did an interview with Jess Sprengel, the cranky therapist. I'm not sure if you know Jess. Yeah, yeah. you're nodding. Yeah, I think everyone knows Jess. And, and she said something that like kind of stopped me in my tracks, which is that all eating is emotional eating, which was just like a total mic drop moment for me. So I kind of asked her to, to dig into that a little bit more. And, you know, fundamentally, um, we are humans. We have emotions. We cannot switch our emotions on and off. So we bring our emotions with us everywhere. We're, we're you know, regardless of what we're doing, um, it's always an emotional experience. So I think that first, like, that's the, that's the, I think when we have that realization, we can we can start to look at emotional eating with a bit more compassion um, and move away from this idea that we we can detach food from emotion. Um, I think about my now 18 month old as well, who, you know, when we were going through um, the weaning process and, um, you know, I mean, he's still learning to, to eat foods and he like as he as he's discovering new foods it he just ex, like embodied so much joy and so much pleasure and so much just you know like this full it was this full body experience like he was eating this yogurt the other day this like strawberry yogurt and he was just kicking his legs and like kind of almost bouncing up and down and, and making this real happy sound and it just goes to show that like from the very beginning eating is an emotional experience. So I think that's like the, the first thing that I like the first, the first point I want to make about emotional eating is that it's not inherently a bad thing. Um, I, I also want to acknowledge that, um, you know, eating can be a distressing experience for some people as well. And I think that's really when, when you're asking about emotional eating, that's what, what you're asking about is when it's, more of a negative emotional experience um and like again it's it's quite a complicated thing to unpack um and I almost think of it as like um like an onion like 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 Shrek like you know you have to peel back the layers to find out what's really really going on because because we live in diet culture and because it's so normal, like disordered eating is so normalized and restriction and that restrict binge pattern is so normalized. Um, we first of all have to make sure that what we are labeling as emotional eating or stress eating or comfort eating isn't actually just a function of the restriction. So I'm not trying to say that all you know, emotional eating or binge eating is a, um, is purely because of restriction, but a, a, a big proportion of it is. And so we kind of have to unpack the, the layers of restriction first. Okay. Is it, um, are you 
physically depriving yourself? Like, are you literally just not consuming enough calories so that you tip your body into a deficit, which, you know, triggers your body to push back up towards that set point weight, which results in you, you know, just kind of like raiding the fridge at the end of the day, which is a totally you know, what an expected response to deprivation. So we need to, first of all, look at that layer. We also need to look at the, um, you know, are you restricting the types of food that you're eating? Are you allowing yourself joy and pleasure and comfort from food? You know, or are you completely banning sugar? Because again, that is going to result in what feels like binging or what might feel like out of control or loss of control eating or um yeah emotional eating and lastly we we also have to look at the the sort of emotional restriction as well are are we um you know are we like trash talking ourselves when we're eating particular foods what's the narrative and the self talk that we have around those foods because um you know if we're if we're putting them up on a pedestal saying they're they're off limits and um you know telling ourselves that we're like terrible people for eating those foods then that's gonna be counterproductive and actually drive us more towards those foods so those are the first kinds of things that I would be thinking of from a nutrition perspective and then if we've kind of worked our way through those layers I'm I'm, we're thinking no actually I am I am using food as a as a, a a coping mechanism then also like the first thing that I would want to work on with someone is just giving ourselves permission to do that because at the end of the day, that's a pretty smart coping mechanism. You know, it, it might be more helpful than some other things that we could turn to. Um, and in the grand scheme of things, food is, is, a, is a pretty helpful coping me- mechanism, I would say. Like, you know, thinking back to, to babies and infants who... Um, you know, like, of course, like the first things that they use to soothe themselves are generally speaking are like the breast or the bottle. So it's connected to food from from a, a very young age. So maybe noticing as well, like what function emotional eating has been serving for you? Um, you know, how has that been helpful? Um, you know, has it has it, you know, helped you through some really tough times? Um, and, and I think if we can approach it that way with a bit more compassion, even just that step um, sort of might reduce the emotional pool that food has over us, if that makes sense. Um, and then from there, at least what, what we talk about at LCIE is, is building up our emotional coping toolkit so that, that um, we have other things in there that aren't just food. Not, that there's absolutely anything wrong with food, but wouldn't it be nice and helpful if we had other things that we could turn to so that we have a choice and maybe it is that we cry into a piece of cake, but we also are maybe going to therapy or setting boundaries or whatever else it is that we need to do to support ourselves. Um, so that like that, that was kind of a long-winded way of explaining how, how we approach things here, but um yeah does that all kind of make sense does that do you have anything that you would add to that honestly that was perfect it really went over the idea of you know it's one coping mechanism that is perfectly fine and you can add other ones 
um, that it can be a function of restriction, um, that it can be um, like a helpful coping mechanism. And especially when we reduce shame about it and draw awareness to that coping mechanism that we're using, I think that can be really helpful. And I think, yeah, the, the, we, we have to think about the, the socio-cultural narrative around emotional eating. Like if we didn't have you know, if, if weight stigma wasn't a thing, if, um, you know, diet culture wasn't a thing, if all these other systems of oppression didn't exist, then we wouldn't vilify and demonize emotional eating the way that we do, because it's, it, it's an, an, a natural human thing to turn towards food when we need comfort. Mm -hmm. I really, really resonated with what you said about um, how we turn to the breast in the bottle from the time we're little and we turn towards nourishment. And um, that's really interesting to me because I think it's just a basic human thing to want to be comforted and to want to feel sustained. And, and we've made it such a moral process um, that it takes away from that simple basic um, yeah. desire and need. Yeah, and, and food is nurture, isn't it? It's, it's, it's like a really fundamental way that we care for ourselves and the people around us um, and who doesn't want to be nurtured and cared for. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's beautiful. Um, let's see. Um, another big question that people love to ask is, is sugar addictive? <laughs> oh, again, this is, this is like a, this is a really tricky one. And I hope I do this justice because I mean I first of all just want to validate anyone's experience where they have felt addicted to sugar like they felt that they just you know like once they get going they can't stop or like they can't have it in the house it's too dangerous um because yeah that feeling like you're just really can't trust yourself or you you feel really out of control around those foods that's a very real feeling so I just want to kind of hold that in mind first of all um the scientific evidence is is inconclusive around the the idea that um sugar is addictive uh, there's quite a lot of problems and difficulties with the studies that have have been done around that and um you know, my, I don't want to just sort of hide behind science because I don't think that that's particularly helpful, but um, the, my experience and the experience, my experience working with clients is that um, generally speaking, when we feel overwhelmed and kind of consumed by sugar, it's generally because we need to eat more of it. <laughs> it's, it's typically because we're restricting or depriving ourselves. And so maybe to illustrate it, if I could remember, if I could just borrow Deb Burkhard's um, analogy of um, Dietland, the, the pendulum that swings from Dietland to Donutland, are you familiar with it? Do mm -hmm. you no? <laughs> Okay, so, so Deb Burkhard is an awesome um, feminist psychologist and um, yeah, fat positive, um, therapist and she uses this fantastic analogy which I think can help us illustrate what's going on when we deprive and restrict ourselves and this is true of any food like it could be bread um the, so basically if you if you imagine a pendulum um 
where when you when you pull it to one side like pull it all the way to one side and then let go it swooshes all the way to the other side really quickly and it keeps going back and forth and back and forth um, and this is this can help us understand what happens when when we pull that pendulum all the way into what deb calls uh, diet land and we're restricting and depriving ourselves the second that we let go of that the pendulum swings all the way into donut land so we have this kind of and then as soon as we get into into donut land and we're eating all the sweets and all the sugar we kind of we freak out right so we we immediately pull the pendulum all the way back into diet land and restrict and so we just end up oscillating back and forth like these these massive swings between diet land and donut land when we learn to eat intuitively and we give ourselves unrestricted access to, to the foods that we like, uh, we're absolutely gonna swing all the way into donut land for a little while. But what happens when we, when we don't pull that pendulum back into diet land? When we don't, you know, when we, when we move away from, um, you know, the, the pressure to, to get back on a diet is and, and learn to eat intuitively is that the, the the pendulum stops swinging so violently from one side to another and it kind of settles somewhere in the middle where we're not you know hanging out in in donut land all the time and we're not hanging out in, in diet land all the time we, we found our sort of middle point we found our balance um and so that's really that's the the incredible thing that can happen when we learn to eat intuitively. Um, but hopefully that also explains that when we're restricting too much, that pendulum is gonna swing too far. And when we are hanging out in donut land sort of, um, and it's not voluntary, right? It can feel really chaotic, it can feel really out of control. It can feel like we're never gonna stop eating those particular foods. Um, but like I say, if we can just kind of let off the, the pendulum a little bit, it will find its balance. And that's not to say it's not gonna swing a little bit from side to side, but that it's not gonna be these huge oscillations. It's just gonna be like a little, a little wiggle. <laughs> I love that. That's a really good explanation. Um, and it really, it's helpful for kind of finding like, it's not necessarily being right in the middle. Like, I think that's how sometimes mindful eating can be described as like right mm. in the middle where um, you stop exactly when you're um, satisfied and you start when you yeah. like being really noticey. Um, but I think recognizing that the pendulum will keep swinging just a little bit, like that's okay. There are going to be days where you want more um, sweet things and there are going to be days where you want less sweet things. And it's just a little bit more stable than like, oh my gosh, I have to have it all right now or none at all. And I think that point that you were saying about it being kind of, there being a bit more of a gray area rather than hard and fast, that's true uh, across the board with intuitive eating of all the 10 principles. And the, the problem I see sometimes is when we try and do the principles perfectly, then, and we don't give ourselves room for, you know, like, for example, eating when we're not hungry, because we have like a meeting to go to, or we're going into a movie it's going to be three hours long and or you know like there there are all these kind of um nuances maybe that if we that we, we miss if we try and stick to the principles like really like hard and fast yes yes they're definitely not meant to be rules just principles frameworks like things to guide us yeah totally 
Um, so with the holidays coming up, um, I'm wondering what advice you have for people who um, are surrounded by family members who are on diets, maybe fasting throughout the day. Mm. Um, what is helpful for you or for clients um, in combating that noise? Yeah, it's, um, it's really tricky. And um, I think, yeah, having, having some self-compassion, um, if you get kind of swept away with those conversations, or even if you get really angry at those conversations, or you like blow up at your family <laughs> about those conversations, um, that's, that's a good starting point. Um, I, I would say that boundary setting is really, really, really important. And um, a conversation that we've been having here at LCIE lately is that, you know, just this idea that boundary setting doesn't have to take place in the heat of the moment where you could say something that you regret or you might blow up at someone. Um, but if you're going home for the holidays and you know that that's going to be a challenging environment in terms of body talk or diet talk, then maybe um, setting that boundary ahead of time. So whether that's like sending your family a WhatsApp with um, a podcast or a, 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 like a blog post or, you know, something for something with some information for them to um, kind of say, like, this is how I want to approach the holidays, please don't talk to me about food, please don't talk to me about your diets, please don't talk about calories or whatever, you know, specifically you want to, to kind of protect yourself around, um, you know, put that like in a message ahead of time or have those conversations ahead of time so that you don't say something you regret in the heat of the moment. Um, if people aren't respecting your boundaries in the moment, I guess you have a couple of different options, but it's, it's important, I think, to check in with yourself, like figure out where you're at, what your capacity and your energy is right now to, to, to tackle that. Like, do you feel that um, you have the capacity to have an educational moment with this person? Or actually, is it more important that you protect your energy and step away from the, the table or step out of the room and maybe do some grounding or whatever helps do you feel a bit more censored? Maybe that's like going and bitching to your best friend um, on the phone or, you know, like whoever your person is that gets it, or, you know, maybe it's an online community that just gets it, that you can just like, you know, pop off into, into the void and, and people will kind of affirm your experiences. Um, so the, those, that's kind of like off the top of my head, the, the way that I'd be approaching things. Um, but if you have like a safe person that you can confide in, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's your mom, maybe it's like a, a friend that lives close by, you know, from home that um, you can just go and say, look, I'm really struggling with food and my body at the moment. Um, can you help me out? Like if weird Aunt Agatha starts talking about like her keto diet, um, can you help me divert the conversation or can you help shut it down some way? So yeah, those are, those are a few ideas. What, what do you, what works for you? Like, how do you um, deal with this kind of like when this stuff comes up? Yeah. I like what you um, shared. And I think um, when, when I have um, those instances, I usually like to just give myself some space. I think that sometimes it's helpful and it's, um, I have the energy and capacity to 
question what they're saying or to kind of offer some alternatives. Um, but a lot of times, sometimes that doesn't work very well for people. They're just like, you're being too sensitive or I don't limit what you talk yeah. about. Um, so I find that kind of stepping back can be really helpful yeah. um, for me. And then recognizing too that this is a hard one, um, but you don't have to participate in all those conversations. You're allowed to say, okay, the consequence, if you don't respect that boundary is I'm not going to have conversations with you all around uh, preparing the meal. And I'll just, you know, I'll limit myself to coming to the meal or something, or even not going, um, which is really hard because family can be a really important aspect of people's lives and missing out on that connection and community and that those needs that are filled from those conversations is really hard. And especially if you depend um, on family members for finances or something like that, it can be hard to feel like you have a voice and a say in things. Um, so I do really like taking space for myself. Yeah, I think that can be so helpful to just, yeah, go ground yourself and remind yourself that you're okay as you are. Um, another sort of technique that I find can be quite helpful is because some, you know, when we, when we get into confrontation, I think this is kind of what you were alluding to as well. Like if, if we confront the person and say, no, you're wrong, like diets don't work. And we go in really hard, it can get their backs up um, and they get really, really defensive. And they're, they're just not going to listen to, they're just not going to be able to hear what it is you're saying to them. So um, going in with maybe a more gentle approach that invites a conversation if that's what that person is actually open to otherwise it shuts the conversation down completely if they're not receptive to it and it's it, it could be something like you know if, if you know again um your aunt says like oh you know sweets are so addictive I couldn't possibly you know have a slice of pie because blah 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 you know it's gonna just be a um you know I'm addicted to sugar whatever you know whatever she says and 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 so instead of being like, well, you know, sugar is not addictive because science, <laughs> kind of like I said five minutes ago, um, what, what you might say is something more like, oh yeah, I used to really think, um, I used to really think that too. And I used to not eat any sweets, but I found that um, having a bit more balance in my life and working on my relationship with food really worked for me. And now I don't feel obsessed with sweets. And so you know, it doesn't have to be that exact wording, but, you know, something to that effect where you're, you're, you're drawing it back to you and your experiences and what has worked for you because nobody, well, people can try, but like your experience is your experience. And if that's what's worked for you, then people can't really argue with that. Um, but it invites them to, you know, if they are curious to be like, oh, that's interesting. I've never thought about it like that. Could you maybe tell me a bit more about how you did that? Um, oh, cool. There's this girl, she's called Laura Thomas. She wrote this book. Why don't you read it? Yeah. <laughs> um, or, um, or they just shut the conversation down and they're like, well, I have no comeback to that. So that's, I think that can be one way to sort of disarm people a little bit. So just another thought might be helpful, might not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think something I think about often is releasing the idea that you have to prove or defend Hayes intuitive eating to other people. Um, and really just 
being okay with like, if you need to just affirm yourself internally, like if that comment is really hard for you to grapple with, instead of putting that energy into trying to defend it, um, kind of being gentle with yourself, using affirmations, saying like, you know, that was a really hard comment to hear. And at the same time, you know, that doesn't have to be true about um, what's going on. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, so what uh, things are you up to during this holiday season? Um, so this year um, really is, well, Avery was only six months old last Christmas, so he's just turned 18 months and he's really getting into Christmas a little bit more. He keeps trying to say Christmas tree, but it kind of says like, cack tree. <laughs> so it's just, it's a bit, <laughs> it's kind of hilarious, but like this morning he opened his first chocolate advent calendar and um, I, like he actually didn't give a crap about it, which was really interesting. Like he just take, took his chocolate, ate it and then started playing again which again kind of shows us like how kids relate to food it's just so fascinating um anyway uh, so, so doing a lot of of kind of little fam family traditions like starting new family traditions um and um in you know getting him more involved in that and and having kind of a quiet cozy christmas the three of us which i'm really excited about that's awesome. Um, what are your favorite? I usually ask what are your favorite foods in general, but I would love to hear what are your favorite holiday foods? Um, oh, that's so hard because like weirdly, I don't really care about holiday foods. <laughs> okay. So I live in London in the UK and like a lot of the traditional Christmas foods that we have are like, like Christmas pudding and mince pies and like like stuff like I have a thing that like fruit does not belong in desserts like those are <laughs> like, like raisins you know you should, like dried fruit shouldn't be in dessert just like that's my preference um and like a lot of Christmas stuff is like themed around that so if I'm like doing holiday baking for myself it's like probably more the kind of food that I would eat when I was living in the States. So like sugar cookies, for example, or like a pie. Um, so I'll probably do some baking and just, yeah, I think the it's for me at Christmas time, it's less about the specific foods that we're eating, but just like about enjoying lots of delicious food and um, like the cooking and down and, and eating that with, with my little family. Um, so yeah, I think, sorry, that that feels like it's kind of a boring answer, but <laughs> no, I love can I that. tell you, can I tell you what I've been craving? Because this might yes. be more interesting. Yes. Okay. So there's a restaurant near us that makes this like cheesy gnocchi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it's like, it's like macaroni. It's like macaroni cheese, but with gnocchi almost. And, um, I was going to pick some up on my way home last night, but the restaurant was closed. So I'm <laughs> devastated, but I am like really looking forward to ordering some of that. Cause it's just like cozy, like it's really cold in London at the moment. So like cozy, comforting, warm, like toasty food. That's yeah. That's what I've been really craving lately. I love that. It sounds delicious. It's so frustrating when restaurants are closed and you really want something. <laughs> it's so selfish. Why are you open all the time? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, 
And what offerings do you have coming up in the next couple months, if you want to share about any? Oh, yeah. So thank you for asking. Um, a big project that we've been working on, so as, as well as setting up the new clinic space at LCIE, um, my colleagues and I have been developing a new course for professionals, so healthcare professionals, education professionals, anyone working with children. Um, and the course is called Raising Embodied Eaters, and uh, it is um, designed to help break that intergenerational cycle of um, dieting and disordered eating. And um, it, it uses the, it uses Neva, Neva Paran's um, developmental theory of embodiment as sort of the main framework that we're, we're kind of interrogating some of the, the practices um, that we have around feeding children in nutrition and, and healthcare and sort of, um, dismantles like um, weight stigma in children and um, really kind of invites practitioners to in interrogate some of the, the advice um, that they offer that might be rooted in like healthism and nutritionism. So um, it's like a pretty big um, course. It's pretty ambitious, uh, but we're really excited about it and it's, it's starting to come together now. Um, so yeah, that's really exciting. So that's um, launching in January. Well, it's open for early bird sales at the moment. And then um, the full course opens in, um, yeah, in January. Perfect. That's awesome. I'm so excited for that. Thank you. This question I ask everybody is how are you becoming? Yeah, so I'm working on trying to become more accepting of myself and specifically the parts of myself that like historically um, I've been taught are bad or wrong or um, yeah, like not acceptable. So yeah, working on um, becoming friends with those parts of myself, even if that means that, um, you know, like people like me less or I'm less, you know, palatable to people. Um, so yeah, just, making friends with, you know, like things like anger and, and stuff like that, that, you know, particularly women are taught are, are not okay emotions to have. Um, so yeah, I think acceptance would probably be the like takeaway piece from that. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing. It's been so fun. Yeah. Thank you for having me. 